I'm your host, Lacey Ramsey. And I'm your host, Alex Brennan. We are a podcast for the strange and unusual. Every other Friday, we release an episode where one of your hosts teaches the other about a topic or event that we find to be strange or unusual. On Monday, before the episode is released, we post our custom-themed cocktail recipe so you have time to get the ingredients and drink along with us. So sit back and relax. It's time for Crackpot Cocktail Hour. Good afternoon. (laughs) This is the final order. All of you are going to die. Most of you are afraid. Why are you afraid? Because you don't know what's going to happen. Pam's heart stopped. She had no blood circulating in her body or her brain. She was dead except for the fact that Dr. Spetzler had the ability to restart her heart and bring her back. But during the hour of clinical death, Pam believes she was incredibly acutely alive. She embarks upon one of the most remarkable near-death experiences ever reported. I felt a presence. I sort of turned around to look at it. And that's when I saw the very tiny pinpoint of light. And the light started to pull me. There's a physical sensation to the pulling and I know how that must sound. And I saw many, many people I knew and many, many I didn't know. But I knew that I was somehow in some way connected to them. Some point in time, I was reminded that it was time to go back. Of course, I had made my decision to go back before I ever laid down on that table. But, you know, the more I was there, the better I liked it. (laughs) And my uncle was the one who brought me back down to the body. But then I got to where the body was, and I looked at the thing, and I for sure did not want to get in it because it looked pretty much like what it was. I saw the body jump. I'm still leaning back. I got an inch forward. Be brave, Lacey. Be brave. (laughs) All right. You want to dive into this? Deep. All right. So uh, before we get into the episode, I've got some shit I need to say. Okay. (laughs) Some stuff I've got to get on the podcast here. Uh, First, I want to warn our listeners that, as you probably can imagine, this episode includes discussions of death and dying, as well as the topic of suicide. Please feel free to skip this episode if you don't want to hear about these topics or if you're having thoughts about killing yourself, please reach out to someone that you trust and let them know what you're thinking and contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at suicidepreventionlifeline.org or by calling them at 1-800-273-8255. Second, I want to share with our listeners something that I shared with Alex recently uh, that neither of us could believe I hadn't told her before. Uh, Crackpot Cocktail Hour, as you may or may not know, is recorded in my apartment in our office. And at a podcast meeting recently where Alex and I were hanging out and talking pod, I informed her that where we record 
uh, is the room where I keep my dad's ashes. You did not tell me we were recording next to human remains. <laughs> and I, I was, of all people. And I was like, oh, right, uh, this could be a negative thing. And then I had this moment of like, oh shit, maybe I shouldn't have said anything. Because you were like, why didn't you tell me? And then you were like, because I just would have loved to have known sooner. <laughs> like, it's such a cool thing to be aware of. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I already appreciate this room, but now I appreciate it so much more now that I'm next to your father's remains. So your reaction to that is part of why we work, I think. <laughs> uh, so thank you for that. Uh, when told that we've been recording next to him, like, sh yeah, you were just, like, totally positive. So um, thank you. Uh, I'm telling all of you, dear listeners, because I believe I've touched on this a little bit before, but I don't think this podcast would exist if I weren't my father's daughter. He instilled a love of weird, spooky shit into me, and we bonded over watching uh, Unsolved Mysteries and The X-Files and all manner of random kinds of Discovery Channel shows. Uh, my family has plans to spread his ashes in the future, so he will not always be in my closet. He'll always uh, be in our heart, Lacey. Yeah, but I just thought it appropriate to mention and give some credit where credit is due, so... Uh, Thanks, Dad, and let's get into this cocktail. All right. Um, actually, right before we get into the cocktail, Go I have a it. story for you that I told you I'm saving for the podcast. That's right. To tell you this. So um, today we're actually we're recording on the solstice, which we were joking around because it's the solstice and it's storming, which just seems very appropriate for us. And I've mentioned on this podcast my dog Sky, who I love dearly. And she scares the shit out of me. So last night, Heath and I decided that we're going to go and uh, grab some food to eat. And while I'm upstairs in the bathroom, he decides to take the dogs outside. And from the downstairs, I hear, what's in your- Oh my god! Oh no. So I'm upstairs. I'm on the toilet. So like, I am immobile. Because I don't want to go downstairs like that. I'm like, sure. I'm like, what did she do? What did she bring inside? He's like, oh my- Oh my god! I'm like- what is it? is it? Is it a dead animal? He was like, sort of. And I was like, is it a mouse? Because we find like dead mice around our house. all the Or like, not around our house, but like around our property sometimes. Sure. I, I, I understood that you meant the outside of your house because of your hand-waving gesture that just for some reason indicated to me the outside, but the listeners could not. Yeah, that. sorry. You guys can see my hand-waving yes. gesture. The, the mice are outside. The, the mice are coming from outside the house. Yes. <laughs> So, uh, we'll see that every now and then, because we have a lot of neighborhood cats, and they'll leave their kills behind. <laughs> and so, uh, he's like, not a mouse, and he's like, actually, you might find it kind of interesting. Which disturbs me a little bit, the way he says it. So I finish up, and I get downstairs. Apparently, a pigeon was killed by one of the raccoons in our neighborhood. There's some real interspecies warfare going on. There really is. And we've seen them, you know, kill birds before in our area. Well, this is what was left of a pigeon. It was the intact spinal column. Oh my god. And rib cage system. And the two upper bones that connect to the wings. Ugh. With just, like, flecks of meat on it. No head, nothing else. Wow. And my first thought is, that is interesting. And then my next thought is... I'm going to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair. So I was thinking, it's like, Sky, you brought in bird bones. Was this for the solstice? Do, do you want to be a familiar? Are you trying to tell me something? We already have a Wiccan, a cultist, and a Satanist all living in this complex. Have they indoctrinated you? Do we need to talk? And then I thought about our superstition episode, how our ancestors would caress the bones oh my of gosh, birds. Yes. And I'm looking at this thing, and I was like, our ancestors 
fucked up. And I suddenly had very, very large concerns about the history of humanity. Yeah, that is really fair and disturbing and um, kind of beautiful that he knew you'd want to see that. (laughs) (laughs) I ended up having to be the one to clean it up because he picked it up off the ground, not realizing what it was, because he's like, what is this? Uh... And then he drops it on the coffee table, so... I had to end up cleaning. I ended up cleaning it up, I, like sanitized and like Lysoled everything in the house. And the whole time, Sky said, "They're like, what? What? She's like the present." It was. I knew I had to tell you. She was like, "What? The ritual is not yet complete, mother." So I'm like, apparently, my dog understands my fascination with remains more than you do. <laughs> well, now I do. Um, but at the same time, I did learn something about myself. Um, I have learned in the last few years that I'm good in a crisis. Yeah. I am the person that will jump to in action and that will be able to handle things. But I also learned that organs and guts and bony remains are not my thing, so there is no chance of me ever being a potential serial killer in the making. Because <laughs> I just know. cannot handle it. <laughs> You're like, I'm interested in it, and I don't want to be near it. Yeah, it's like, I'm interested from afar. I would like to know I'm the like, information. I would not like to be up close to observe. I'm interested in the story and the puzzle, but you do you. <laughs> you can stay over there. <laughs> Keep your bird bones out of my house. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you told me that. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you would appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. And Lacey's dead wherever you are in here. Top right. I'm, in, I'm waiting at the closet. He's in um, the box. He's in grandma's box. Uh, <laughs> Robin had to bring up from uh, Texas. I had her fly up and I was like, could you bring grandma's box? And she was like, come again. <laughs> what now? Grandma's like, haunted box. It contains her spirit. Like, come on. <laughs> well, yeah, they were all. Oh, thank you for going that direction and not the other direction for grandma's box, which was definitely <laughs> the joke I was making. And so she brought grandma, my great grandma's uh, box that held her ashes until her ashes were um, believe, spread. Uh, and so... Now he's in great-grandma's box, and so I feel like there's some kind of... It's the family ashes box, so when your time comes, you'll be in there. Oh, yeah. Let's not talk about when my time comes. (laughs) I'm not ready yet. I'm not going to go toward the light yet. Which segues us into the title of our cocktail, Go Toward the Light. This looks actually kind of darling. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. All right, cheers. Cheers. That is a yummy drink. Thank you. You put um, Pinnacle Whip Vodka in there? I did. Yes. Yeah. With a, and there's obviously there's a, the whipped cream on top. Mm-hmm. So light and fluffy. Thanks. Uh, so go toward the light is one part each of I, whipped cream vodka. I use Pinnacle. Uh, one part white chocolate liqueur and one part grapefruit or pomelo juice. I use pomelo because I've never used them before or eaten them before. And I read that they were lighter in flesh than grapefruit. I did not find that to be the case, but uh, I'm glad that I tried it. It's very similar though. Yeah, you were definitely in there grinding that pomelo just to get the juice out. Yeah, the rind is thick, is thicker than you would want. For it's nice and thick and, and juicy. Yeah, uh, as Lee said, that's a thick ass grapefruit. Uh, I called it Go Toward the Light because uh, seeing the light is an extremely common feature of near-death experiences. The cocktail is a little pinker than I imagined, uh, but you could make it whiter with white grapefruit juice instead of pomelo. You could also try a non-alcoholic version by substituting white chocolate syrup for the liqueur and using milk or cream in place of the vodka. 
keep the dollop of whipped cream on top and keep the fruit juice. I haven't tested that, so that's my disclaimer, but I think the flavors would go well together and that you could blend it into something pleasing. Yeah. One of the things I like about this too, and uh, obviously your episode this week is near-death experiences. Um, I was also thinking they kind of look like clouds. It kind of tastes like a little cloud. I was just thinking about the uh, stereotypical vision of heaven that a lot of people think about. Yeah, I like that. I'll go with that. I'm adding more layers to your (laughs) intention. This is your original intention, Lazy. For sure. Yeah, no, that's, you read my mind. I I just get you. Uh, I will add that when I was doing the photo shoot for this cocktail, I uh, put it in the freezer because I did the photo shoot at like two in the afternoon or something and I didn't feel like drinking. And so I put it in the freezer for like later and found it and was like, oh, cool cocktail. And it had half frozen because the vodka didn't freeze. Mm -hmm. And it was really nice. I kind of ate it with a spoon. It was like a, like a frozen yogurt type thing. That kind of sounds like a really nice like summer treat. Yeah. To bring like to a barbecue or something, just freeze up a couple instead yeah. of like jello shots. Just bring those. <laughs> and I thought like grapefruit or pomelo because I think a lot of the like white cocktails are usually just like very sweet and there's not a lot of other flavor profiles. I wanted to add something else. Yeah. I do like that you explore a lot on your cocktails that you create. So it's not always just like Here's, I don't know, a Sprite and a rum, and then this is going to be a Jack and Coke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. I like, I enjoy like putting things together and like experimenting with stuff. I was really excited getting the ingredients for this cocktail. Yeah, well, you've definitely uh, nailed it. So what's this episode coming up? January? Uh, yes, this will be our January 3rd episode. Oh, should we announce that this is the end of our hiatus? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Welcome back, crackpots. <laughs> yeah. So it just occurred to us that uh, we are behind schedule by about a month, but we've decided that going forward, this is going to be a part of our intention. Yes, we want to take regularly scheduled breaks. Uh, I think we just like need that because we have lives. We're human. Yeah, and uh, families and things that we need to deal with. We're not uh, just shackled to these microphones. So uh, we do apologize for our long uh, hiatus that we didn't announce. We'll uh, do our best to keep a schedule and let you guys know how things are going to shake out like, yeah. ahead of time. But we're uh, aiming to post every other Friday, and then we'll let you know about any breaks before they happen. Yeah. And uh, this year, I mean, especially with the holidays, and this being our first holiday season trying to record the podcast, obviously there are a lot of family and friend events going on, a lot of people traveling, a lot of things happening. Um, Lacey and I were talking recently, I have had a very turbulent December Um So I mentioned vaguely that something had happened in my life recently in our last episode, and it was that I lost my grandmother. And anybody who knows me um, or has spent a significant amount of time with me knows that my grandma was like a mother to me. And it was a very big loss. I spent about a month not feeling like myself, feeling a lot better now. I just got back from Vegas for her service and it was perfect. And I got back just in time to find out my back is broken. And it has been. For years. Not to reference the weather again, but when it rains, it pours. Right. <laughs> and then my truck broke down. So, oh, uh, no, you're living in a country song. Excuse me. And then my dog died. No, 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 no. That doesn't happen. All right. No. <laughs> Shit just got very serious in the podcast recording office. <laughs> I mean, I will laugh about bird skeletons and my truck breaking down and my broken spine all day, but do fuck with my dogs. Yeah. All right, uh, dive on into our episode on near-death experiences. Give you a little background on the genesis of this episode for me. Uh, I'm fascinated by the ways in which people attempt to create meaning out of death. I think that comes from a love for the existential and also 
my spooky inclinations. Uh, as far as I know, humans are the only creatures who live with an awareness that we will one day die, and as such, we have to find a way to cope with that. Combine that with what we know about memory function, that events which have a strong emotional impact are encoded within us as instructions related to our survival, and it's no wonder that near-death experiences, or NDEs, have a place in our society. What is really happening in a near-death experience? Is there another life, realm, world, or form that we enter after we die? Can any of us ever come back from that realm? Or are neurons just firing away, drawing pretty pictures on the insides of our mind? Fascinating. <laughs> to, uh, I'm, give me a second here. I'm gonna turn toward you as I tell you a story. I can edit this so it sounds nice and clean. There we go. Put this in the light instead of fighting the fact that your microphone is in the light and that I'm not looking at you. Hi. Two birds, one stone. Two birds, one solstice. <laughs> to get happy start- solstice. Thank you. Happy solstice happy to solstice you. Happy solstice to everybody. Yeah, yeah, everyone listening, happy late solstice. Happy New Year to you guys. I hope everyone's recovered from their hangovers by happy January. Happy solstice. Happy Yule. <laughs> <laughs> happy all the days. Also, happy all those predictable Roaring Twenties parties that happen on New Year's Eve. To get started on researching near-death experiences, I went to The Authority, uh, the International Association for Near-Death Studies Incorporated, and their incredibly extensive website. Uh, So the association, the IANDS, was formed in 1981 in response to scientific interest in near-death experiences. Naturally. Yeah, I mean, it's like, well, let's actually research this. A lot of people are talking about it. Let's see if there's something to this. Almost all the information in this episode is from the website for the International Association for Near-Death Studies Incorporated. They are just incredible. They list their sources on their website as well. And so I thought, like, it seemed well-researched. I did pull from a few other things that'll be in our sources on our website, but I wanted to let everyone know up front, like, a lot of this is from that one source. It's not even, this doesn't even really touch into, like, everything that they cover, though. Like, Mm -hmm. they have, like, basic information, and then they have so many different, like, accounts of things, and it just goes... You could get lost on this website. Well, we, to be fair, our to be fair, to be fair, our episodes are usually what an hour long, and I don't think that we can cram everything related to near-death experiences into an hour-long podcast. We're gonna fucking try. <laughs> I'll drink to that. All right. No. Oh. It's okay. We can't do my, my pants are just really oh. It's sticky. Oh, it's sticky. <laughs> oh yes. yeah. Uh, welcome back, everyone. Uh, that's the, our other podcast. Oh, that's right. We make more money on that. <laughs> <laughs> the association states that depending on how researchers in each study define a near-death experience, between 12 and 40% of people who go through an event in which they're near death actually have what we think of as a near-death experience. So that means like probably the majority of people who like almost die don't really have one of these like near-death experiences. Interesting. Like they... They do, like, technically, but not, like, as we think of what I'm going to get into, what a, quote, near-death experience is. Okay. Yeah. Because what I'm saying is semantically, like, they were near-death. <laughs> okay. But they didn't go through, like, the whole, like, what we yeah. Like, so they like, were near-death, but they weren't, they didn't have some kind of conscious, memorable experience. Like, they woke up in a hospital, and that was it. Most people who even do don't have this whole thing that happens. Just, they don't experience this, this phenomenon. That's what I'm, I'm going to put that, because the terminology is confusing, right? Like, yeah. They had a near-death experience, but they didn't have a capital near-death, capital N, capital D, capital E. Um, anyway, it shows, uh, demographic data shows that anyone from any culture, race, gender, anything can have one of these. And so far, there are no good ways to use any of those things about a people to tell what kind of near-death experience a person is going to have. We don't know how to predict it. There's not enough data, and there's not, like, 
it doesn't seem to be tied to anything in particular at this point. There are a couple things that are tied to a couple of things, but I'll go over those okay. specifically. Are you sure that at one point they didn't try to like recreate the movie Flatliners or something? <laughs> I'm not sure that people haven't tried to recreate it. I am sure it's a bad idea. <laughs> you have a bad time. You gotta have a bad time. I would say, uh, that the data is a little bit limited. I think that the interest in these uh, scientifically and most of the research has taken place on Western populations. And so I think we'd need more data to say whether mm. we can tie things to specific demographic things, but so far we haven't been able to. Yeah, that's fair. There is some disagreement about what constitutes a near-death experience. Uh, I'm going, this International Association for Near-Death Studies states that a quarter of people who report they've had experiences that seem an awful lot like these NDEs were in fact nowhere near death, like in deep meditation or experiencing profound grief of some kind. Interesting. Yes. Okay, tell me more. So there are also gurus who state that near-death experiences like this can be brought on intentionally through meditation. Okay, I mean, the human brain is fascinating. It's endlessly fascinating. Uh, so, and that people have also gone through these uh, where they are not, they're not sure what triggered it. They don't know what happened. They weren't near death. They weren't having profound grief. There was nothing that they weren't in deep meditation. It just was spontaneous. I think that is less common, but it has still happened. Okay. Tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> like, was he still alive? <laughs> I love that. Where do we go when we die? <laughs> Next t-shirt. <laughs> uh, many people who've had near-death experiences state that they were actually dead and not near-death. They were actually fully dead. Like they, again, some people were still alive. Some people we have no idea because they weren't like hooked up to life yeah. or anything. They claim so. that they crossed over into that area that exists beyond death. But that was the feeling that they had about their experience anyway. Uh, the website states that most people have pleasurable near-death experiences where they feel some combination of, quote, love, joy, peace, and or bliss. Dope. Yeah, that's great. Some people have distressing near-death experiences in which they experience, quote, feelings of terror, horror, anger, isolation, and or guilt. Well, I don't like that at all. Yeah, uh, that's uh, pretty disturbing. Uh, something common between something common between both pleasurable and distressing NDEs, though, is that people in both instances report that perception that this experience was hyper real or more real in some way than their everyday life. Okay. It, it, it left the impression on them like this is more real than anything I've ever experienced. More real than reality. Yes. That is an interesting concept. So do with that what you will, but everyone who's gone through them, like that's kind of what they're left with. You know, I do have to say, like, uh, as you know, I have incredibly vivid dreams. And now with my medication, they're even more vivid. Huzzah. But I remember I had this dream one time when I think I was in high school. And in the dream I was flying, we all had dreams where we could fly. But it felt so incredibly real that when I woke up, I was like, okay, rationally, I know I can't fly. I know that's not a possibility. But I could still remember the sensation of it so clearly mm. that I was almost like, but maybe? But like, what's that? I was like, but maybe I could. I tend to have either nightmares or like terribly mundane dreams. It's either like everything is scary or like, I dream like I put a thing in the microwave and I had like a meal and it, nothing happened and it was totally fine. And then I'll be like the next day thinking about that meal I had and be like, nope, that was a dream. 
And so <laughs> I have like stupid things like that all the time where I feel like it was real just because like, why wouldn't something like that be real? It's just me living in my apartment doing some like nonsense bullshit that yeah. like, any person would do like, oh, I changed the channel on the remote. And it's like, no, that never happened. Like that, that happens to me a lot. Um, as you can probably expect, and as so many things do, uh, this information, especially the hyper-real perception, led me to wonder whether near-death experiences are similar to the experiences created by hallucinogens. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we all knew we were going to end up here at some well, point. <laughs> you know what podcast you're listening to. I'm going to level with you. Uh, this is what, episode 12, 13? Is this episode 13? I think this is 12. Oh, because I... I don't know. No, this is episode 13 because I did Kathy Sesnick on the dime. And then we did... Are we doing near-death experiences on episode 13? Oh, are you fucking are kidding we really me? Are doing that? Oh, God. I'm going to double check right now in my podcast app because that seems likely and also like we're going to have bad time. Yeah, mm-hmm. We're yeah. doing near-death experiences on our 13th episode during a storm on the solstice. <laughs> Uh, Maybe yeah. there's a reason Sky brought me those bird bones last night. God. Um, She's like, I heard they're good luck. You caress them, Mom. I listen to your podcast. I'm just trying to help. I guarantee that's the bitch that gave us one star. It's just Sky <laughs> fucking with us. <laughs> Sky quit it. Um, so there is an article on Psychology Today by Benjamin Mitchell Yellen titled, How Similar Are Near-Death Experiences to Acid Trips? And that gave me some of the information I needed. So thank you, that article. Uh, the author points out that the mixture of chemicals our brains release upon having a near-death experience could trigger a state of altered perception, similar to the way a hallucinogen would alter perception. And the article refers to a recent study published in the journal Consciousness and Cognition, which sounds like a pretty fun journal, that compared 625 near-death experience reports with 15,000 accounts of drug-induced experiences triggered by 165 different substances. And so they got all these reports from the MKUltra project, correct? <laughs> they just might. <laughs> Stay tuned for our MKUltra episode to be announced at a later date. But will happen. It will happen. Yeah, it is planned. That's uh, um, not a throwaway. We promise. Yeah. Uh, according to the study, different drugs produce experiences similar to NDEs at different rates and to different degrees, which makes sense to me because not all drugs are created equal. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, the study found that hallucinogens produce trips similar to near-death experiences more so than antipsychotics or sedatives or stimulants, and that ketamine in particular, a hallucinogenic dissociative drug, produced the most similar effects and was strongly linked with out-of-body experiences, which are a key feature in these. Okay, so now I'm going to cut in with a personal story Go because it. I'm good at that. Yeah, I love it. So, um, years ago on, I want to say, my 27th birthday, I was uh, drunk. This is going to be a depressing story. Uh, we were at this bar and oh, yes. the setup for this bar is there was a karaoke stage. On the stage, there were a bunch of like sofas and chairs and things. That was kind of like the party area. And then there was a giant table. So as people were coming up to perform karaoke, they would set their drink down on what was our table because we had all the sofas and chairs and then they would take their drink and leave. We think the way that I got the drink because we had a very large group and uh, I'm gonna bleep his name for this, but it was one of the guys there. Mm -hmm. And as you know, he's kind of like a broad shouldered kind of bigger guy. So you're not gonna mess with a group with uh, someone who looks like that. And we had another guy who was about the same size. Sure. So I likely would not have been the target because everyone in the bar knew it was my birthday. I was surrounded by a large group of people. So we think what happened is either they were targeting another girl in our group and I picked up her drink 
or somebody left their drink on the table and I took a sip from it or I drank from it and I ended up ingesting it. But uh, we knew the bartender at the time and the bartender also told us that sometimes people will just drop things in people's drinks just to fuck with them and watch the reaction. Well, if that's not chaotic evil, I don't know what is. Anyway, uh, so my last memory is having a great time. My next memory is waking up in my bed with vomit in my hair and no pants. Hmm. I've been told that during this interim, it was like a light switch was flipped on me. Like I was just having a great time, I was chatting, and then I just stopped interacting. At one point, someone took my drink out of my hand and I was holding my hand out like I was still holding my drink. So immediately they rushed me to the house. Um, My amazing friends, uh, Scott and Angela were there. Um, And then Heath, who was then my boyfriend, who's now my husband, uh, they took us back to like our apartment. They put me in the bathroom and apparently every time someone got close to me, I would start fighting them. And, but one of the other things I was told is that I did say in the car, I'm dying, I'm going to die. What the EMT said, and based on my reactions, what everyone was seeing, they said it's most likely that there was ketamine in her drink. Which would make sense uh, with the dissociative nature of it because you're like there and then you're not, and then you're like not physically present in your body, which feels very dissociative. Yeah, I have no memories of this night. We do joke around about it now because who knows what the fuck I was hallucinating and because according to Heath, every time someone would get close to me in the bathroom, like to move me to a sofa, to clean my hair, to bring me into the bathroom, I would just start fighting them. But as soon as the paramedics show up, and I think this is because I grew up around cops, like I saw the uniform and I was like, behave yourself, child. (laughs) (laughs) My situation, I was with friends, I was safe, but what you're talking about with how ketamine, you get the hallucinations, you get the dissociation, and then there's uh, a lot of people have that I'm dead or dying feeling. Mm. And those all track with my reactions that night. Yikes. Yeah, I think. So I think that's very interesting. It's an interesting, uh, I, I can vouch for this. <laughs> and I've also heard that like ketamine in, um, small doses is like, it's being tested as a treatment for depression as well. So like, I, kn- I know that like, there's research ongoing, like dosage and body chemistry, all of that, like withstanding, like that, those things are to be considered, but like never drug someone. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, Ketamine is an animal tranquilizer, medically speaking. And I know that I am currently on Zoloft, which is an SSRI, but Zoloft works as a almost a slight tranquilizer. Like it kind of like it, it mutes that extreme like sorrow, anger, guilt, self-loathing, all those beautiful things that I go through on a daily basis. <laughs> sharp ass edges. And I know that like uh, I've been on a couple of antidepressants and they all make you a little bit sleepy. Mm. And so I can kind of see why ketamine would be an interesting way to go just because it has its root as a tranquilizer. That being said, I'm not a pharmacist. Sure. If you want to talk to the pharmacist in the family, talk to my cousin Mallory. She'll know much more than I do. And this is still like in its research basis. Yeah, yeah, just on my like my Wikipedia-based knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) But that was a yeah, that's a really uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Tremaine. Yes, thank you. God, you just get it. (laughs) You don't know my fascination with remains. (laughs) Remains, Germaine, it's all in there. I'm just thinking that you don't love me. (laughs) (laughs) Am I not pretty enough? Of course you're pretty enough. I love our daughter. Our podcast baby. Um, so following ketamine in producing trips uh, similar to near-death experiences was salvia, which I only know about because I saw a video of like Miley Cyrus doing it. What salvia? Uh, it was a thing that like all the kids were like smoking a few years back. And, all like, the hip kids. Like 
it's it's very dissociative. Like the video of Miley smoking it is like uh, I don't know if it's still on YouTube, but when I watched it a while back, it was like she smokes it and then you can she just like kind of leans back and like her eyes go blank and she just looks like she's not fucking there. It's uh, like a baby lobotomy, but it lasts super short. It's like oh. it's like maybe a minute or a couple of minutes and it's gone. So like in that, it's controlled. I think people still obviously have negative reactions there's definitely risk involved well that sounds absolutely terrible yeah uh so yikes but i think again it goes back to the dis dissociative properties and that that it makes sense that being out of body and near-death experiences mm -hmm. and dissociative drugs would kind of all go together um lsd induced trips were specifically found to be the most similar to near-death experiences that were triggered by heart attacks so we have a decent amount of research on heart attack patients and near-death experiences because it's relatively easy group to, con to yeah. do a controlled study on because people are in the hospital already for their heart attacks. I wonder if there is like something that's being released in the body that kind of replicates that, ki that chemistry that happens in your brain when you take LSD. Yeah, uh, I have a great segue into that, actually. Uh, so I knew you did. <laughs> have you heard of DMT? I've heard of it, but I don't know what it is specifically. I'm not cool, Lacey. You are very cool. I didn't do marijuana until it was legal in the state that I live in. <laughs> Honestly, same. Well, okay, almost same. <laughs> um, so researchers uh, in this big study, they note that DMT has a role to play in near-death experiences, but they contradict previous research that was based on really small sample sizes of people taking ayahuasca. So DMT is the active uh, substance that's in ayahuasca. Okay. And so people take that. I know it's part of like tribal spiritual rituals and ceremonies that um, white people have co-opted to like trip out and find meaning in their own lives. White people stealing from other cultures? Never. That's that is a shock emerald. to me. Yeah, I am appalled. Yeah. Uh, so that's part of ayahuasca. But uh DMT's full Christian name is dimethyltryptamine. It's a potent psych psychedelic found in ayahuasca as well as found in trace amounts in our blood and urine. So our bodies actually produce DMT. It's been called um, the spirit molecule or the god mo molecule because people were wondering if it was like a, a door to another realm or like if we could tap into DMT. They thought like that was okay. the end all be all, the, cure, the key for near death experiences. And this new research is kind of showing there's a lot of other substances that kind of either need to work together or replicate different parts of the NDE, but no substance on its own really does the full NDE. Okay, so now I know why I know DMT. Okay. There's a documentary on one of the streaming services that actually says DMT, the God Molecule, and yeah. I have not watched it. I, I, I don't think I have either, but I that's what I, I can I can picture the cover of it in my mind. In my mind's eye, I can see it. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's what that is. Many people report having experiences similar to NDEs when they take ayahuasca, but again, like it's just more complicated than that. Like, it, we haven't, I don't think we've been able to fully replicate near-death experiences just by using drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, it also works in conjunction with neurochemicals and endorphins uh, that are already present in our body. There's some research around endorphins, but it hasn't really gotten a lot of traction yet. Okay. Um, it's interesting to me, though, that I'll be, like, we find DMT in our human bodies. Our human bodies? Yeah. In our human bodies, in we this, find... In this vessel, on this plane, <laughs> we find there is DMT within us all. <laughs> if you believe it. <laughs> Scientists have not actually found a source for it. So like we find it in our waste products or in our blood and urine, but like we don't actually know what part of our body makes it. That's crazy weird. Yeah, so uh, do with that what you will. But so I something that in the decomposition <clears throat> process 
perhaps or waste process creates it. I don't know. So and when your urine combines, <laughs> you'll trip balls in your dust. And now all of our listeners are smoking their urine. Please don't smoke your urine. Crackpot cocktail hour does not condone smoking urine. Or, or blood. <laughs> yeah, just don't smoke any of your bodily fluids. Don't attempt to powder and smoke any of your bodily fluids. Please don't. That shouldn't be something we have to tell you guys. But because there are such things as lawsuits. And Tide Pod challenges. <laughs> I'm happy to leave that one in 2019. So... The hallucinogens got me also wondering, like, what are other possible explanations for yeah. near-death experiences? Uh, so I'm going to go through a few of the ones that I read people have tried to posit as explanations. One is that they are a result of an oxygen-depleted brain. I've heard that one before. The research uh, actually kind of leans away from this one because really? people with anoxia, which is the word for having oxygen deprivation in your brain, are disoriented and forgetful. Whereas people who have uh, near-death experiences, like, remember that shit. It is very real to them, and they don't forget it. Whereas people who are having, like, blood lo- like oxygen loss in their brain won't be able to recall anything with clarity. Yeah. Well, I know, like, uh, one of the reasons why autoerotic asphyxia is uh, such a big thing is because when you're cutting off that blood supply, people will see colors, they'll enter a state of euphoria. Mm. And I wonder if that's one of the things that people are pairing with, like, you know, the loss of oxygen and then maybe this particular experience that some people get. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, that being said, that's an excellent point that people in that state aren't exactly mentally present. Right. I remember things so vividly. So their recall is just generally not nearly as good as people who've been through the NDE. Our near-death experience is a type of dream we have where it can be a nightmare or a good dream. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I better have your dream catcher with me when I die. I swear to fucking God. <laughs> like, I'm gonna start, like, thinking I'm going into hell and then we'll have, like, a random angel pop up that's gonna be like, no, 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 you, you don't want to look at that. You're going to have a bad time. We're, we're going to go this way. <laughs> Pete, Pete, open the gate. Yeah, you got to bring that with you, so you've got a choice. Um, I honestly just think we need way more research about both near-death experiences and dreams to, like, understand what's fair. Like, we just don't understand either of these things very well. So, like, I love the idea that it could be a type of dream, but... I'm just going to be buried with that dream catcher. It's, <laughs> it's doing a good job protecting me. I'm, I'm glad it's uh, at least redirecting you to better dreams. It's going to get me into the right afterlife. Oh. <laughs> That's all we need. I'm going to get to the pearly gates and St. Peter's going to be like, wait, wait, wait. Why do you have a dream catcher instead of a rosary on you right now? Because that looks like a false idol to me. <laughs> Or gonna be like, oh cool, the Native Americans. Yeah, no, they were actually right. Come on in. And he's like, actually, they were pretty dope. Let's go. <laughs> Y'all really fucked up on that one. Another positive theory that Carl Sagan put forward was that near-death experiences could be memories of our own birth because a lot of people experience this passing through a tunnel. Oh. And so, in the light at the end of the tunnel, uh, whether, whether um, whatever type of birth you have. What if existence isn't linear? What if it's circular? Oh, so and you just like... lose your memory when you come out the other side. That's entirely possible. In which case, I'm living this shit over and over again. Are you fucking kidding me? It's Groundhog Day up in here for you. God damn it. <laughs> Unless, of course, reincarnation is what it's about. Mm, that could be too. Carl Sagan, you come 
the coolest theories. Uh, so that's we kind of you. that's what I found for like explanations. I was wondering if there was anything that came up for you or that you thought of as another explanation. One of the things that I uh, read recently kind of went along with the uh, lack of oxygen. It was a built up of carbon in the blood because people with uh, carbon monoxide poisoning tend to hallucinate or they'll th- see things in a skewed way. Mm. And so part of it was a uh, it was a recent study that a scientist was obviously a scientist, that uh, one guy had put forward that it was potentially the excess of carbon going into your brain that was causing this that made you react in a very similar way to carbon monoxide poisoning because people that have been in that situation that have survived, they don't always end up impaired afterwards. A lot of people do have very vivid memories of what happened in that state. I like this explanation. It seems pretty scientific. Yeah, so that was the only one that I read recently. But again, it's just a hypothesis by one scientist whose name I don't know yet. I think like it just really underlines the fact that like we just need way more research about this kind of thing because even this massive study like around hallucinogens is just like kind of still tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Well, out of curiosity, have you ever had a near near death experience? Not that I can recall, so I guess not. Do you know anyone who has? If I do, I don't. They don't come to mind. Okay. Because I, I know people who have been near death. I know people who have dodged death, but I don't know anyone who's actually like been on that precipice and come back. Yeah, I would be curious. Uh, listeners, if you or anyone you know has had a near-death experience, let us know. We are really curious to hear stories and about it. it's this. not too triggering for you to share it with us. Yeah, um, for sure. It, it likely wouldn't be, but I'll get into yeah. that. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so now that we've talked about the potential causes, I want to get into the nuts and bolts. Uh, there are several types of near-death experiences as well as phases that take place generally during experience. Uh, according to the International Association for Near-Death Studies website, experiences fall into either the pleasurable or distressing category like i was saying earlier Mm -hmm. pleasurable near-death experiences tend to take place in four phases whereas distressing near-death experiences sometimes are patterned after the same phases as the pleasurable ones but they fall into four categories as well so Mm -hmm. we'll kind of break those down i'm gonna dive into the pleasurable ones first because uh i'm a hedonist (laughs) (laughs) i like nature although there tend to be four phases of a pleasurable near-death experience much like grief Not everyone will experience the phases in the same order, will experience all of the phases. You can do them cyclically, sometimes phases repeat, but this is generally the structure. The four phases are the dissociated phase, naturalistic phase, supernatural phase, and return to the body. Okay. Which, yeah, great terminology. Yeah. Dissociated phase. In this phase, the person having the near-death experience has a feeling of detachment from their body and their surroundings. They experience freedom from pain, often accompanied by a sense of floating. Uh, I've got to say, there are strains of weed that can definitely replicate a lot of that feeling. <laughs> Freedom of pain and a little bit of a floaty feeling. So um, that goes into pot being a little bit dissociative. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's partly what's useful for using it as a treatment for pain because it takes you just like a little bit away from it. It doesn't make the pain necessarily go away. It just like kind of turns the volume down on it right? mm-hmm. or like how much you feel attached to the pain. Okay. In the naturalistic phase, people report becoming aware of their bodies and surroundings from an outside perspective. They'll tend to report things that seem like they normally would, except much more vivid. So they're there, they see everything, but like just brighter and realer seeming. Okay. Uh, Frequently, they'll report supernatural sounding abilities, like being able to see through walls or hearing other people's thoughts, which leads us into the supernatural phase. Yeah. In this phase, the person having the near-death experience encounters quote, beings and environments that they do not consider to be a part of the natural world, end quote. 
They may meet with loved ones who have died or with beings who do not possess a physical form. They report that communication with these beings is much more like telepathy than it is anything like spoken communication. So it's if you were having a near-death experience, and for whatever reason you saw me, it wouldn't be like me sitting down here, be like, I'm over there, and you could like get the intention of yeah, I could, what I'm trying I to communicate to you. Them. Exactly. There are reports of being transported to beautiful environments where objects appear to be glowing from within, and sometimes beautiful otherworldly music is playing. Aww. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> the supernatural phase is the one where people report quickly moving through a tunnel of some sort. They report being surrounded by darkness, feeling squeezed, and find that the light generally, I think it was like around half of people, find that the light was actually a being and not like just a light. It's a being who welcomes them with love and acceptance when they arrive. So sweet. Uh, one interesting point in the research is that people who live in places with tunnels will describe moving through a tunnel, but people who live in places who don't have tunnels as a part of their infrastructure, don't have like roads and things like mm -hmm. that, will use different ways to describe the same thing. And the one that I read was uh, moving through the neck of a gourd. Oh, okay. And so it's like, what an amazing thing that we're trying to describe the same experience, but because of like, we have to find a metaphor to relate it to in our surroundings. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the same physical thing. Yeah. Same, it's same just thing. because you don't have the same base knowledge to create the same analogy. But they're like narrow space into open space with light at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I thought that was cool. I, it makes me want to know more research about other cultures. Well, also briefly going back to the uh, lack of oxygen explanation. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people, um, both in autoerotic asphyxia, but people who have um, tried to commit suicide by hanging or someone has tried to kill them by suffocation, they experience a tunneling as their brain loses oxygen. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the world is kind of zooming away into like a point. And I wonder if that can in a way also be related. Because it sounds like in this, like it, they're approaching something, but the tunneling effects still happen. So I'm going to tell you a personal experience. Uh, I have a lot, <laughs> I have a lot of anxiety. That's not the news. <laughs> I think that's pretty clear. Um, oh, I've been so insensitive to you. <laughs> uh, but I have had only one real panic attack in my life, like hardcore thought I was dying panic attack on an airplane. Fun. And um, I experienced that tunnel. And I remember Lee sitting next to me and me saying, um, oh my God, oh my God, something's wrong. Oh my God, I can't see, I'm losing my vision. Something is wrong, I might, like something is not okay. And he was like, uh, and he starts freaking out for a second and then he goes, I think you're having a panic attack. Yeah. <laughs> I'd never had one, but he's like, I'm pretty sure this is what this is. And like, he was like, what tools do you know from your counselor that you can yeah. use? And I was like, great, I've got tools. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. Let me just pull out my kit. <laughs> but whatever that was, like I experienced, like my, my vision started to constrict into like a narrow tunnel. And it's like, mm -hmm. what the fuck? Yeah, and so there's something that, like, and I, I associated that with the feeling of dying, even though... Yeah, I wonder if... Um, now, you were talking earlier about how a lot of our genetic code comes down to self-preservation and then continuing that genetic line. In a way, our genes are kind of like a parasite that lives inside us that are looking for us to reproduce so it can move on to a new host. Oh, that's a cool way to put it. Um, so it would make sense biologically if the to make the death process less painful because number one there is the potential that you can come back because i'm sure species have had near-death experiences since the dawn of time since the dawn of life so from a biological standpoint i can see it making sense that 
your body would come up with a mechanism that would create some sort of reaction that would seem more pleasant. And some people obviously don't have a pleasant reaction, but an experience that seems pleasant that we've just in the end created an entire theology based on. Mm. So that transition can be more peaceful. So as we're assuming we don't die, we're not necessarily afraid of that death. Should we transition to that in the future, allowing us more chances to live a full life and to continue the life of our genes? I can see that from um, a human perspective. I have a hard time with that from an animal perspective because I think most animals don't so much have like a concept of time or like before yeah. and after or there Yeah, we have no idea of understanding what their sure. conscious experience is. I mean, we know that our pets have a consciousness, but we don't know the depth of that. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, but I can understand just from a biological standpoint, it being a peaceful mm. passing. Yeah, not not making it unnecessarily fraught, especially if it's yeah. like, just pass it on. And if you can't, like, there's no point in making it bad. I mean, could you imagine, like, the first lizard that has, like, a near-death experience and it's horrible and it's painful and there's just nightmares and blah 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 and suddenly all the other lizards know and then they have like a panic attack and then the whole species is wiped out <laughs> yeah that's fair. i mean that just sounds we like we don't want to be losing the lizards th- that just sounds like mass hysteria <laughs> i hope the lizards are we love you lizards <laughs> during the supernatural phase also that's when some people report experiencing a life review which can include both seeing events in your life or re-experiencing them as if you were doing them again, like committing actions again or experiencing them again. And sometimes you even have the experience of being on the receiving end of your own actions, which I thought was really fascinating. Oh, that could be cool or Uh, terrifying depending on who you are. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, That really made me think on the one hand, there are probably chemical components to empathy that we don't Mm -hmm. fully understand. Those are probably triggered in some way by near-death experiences. But on the other hand, there's a part of me that believes in the collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. Just got too much psychology training not to. <laughs> in some sort of link between all, all of our minds. And I think that experiencing being on the receiving end of your own actions like feels like a way to tap into that collective unconscious. Like yeah. the experience of others and the, like, the web of human experience that we're all connected to. Yeah. There was a really cool creepypasta that I read a long time ago, Ooh. and uh, the idea was that you get to exist as the entire universe is an egg, and you get to exist as every human being. So when I die, I may wake up with the individual consciousness of a Japanese soldier in World War II, and then the next time I die, I may wake up and I'm you, and the next time I wake up, I'm the king of France, and this happens over and over and over again until you've lived every human existence, Ooh. and that's the collective consciousness of the universe, because it's the universe's chance to explore itself. I like that. It's one of my favorite creepy pastas of yeah, all time. That's amazing. Yeah. As you know, I like existential horror because, I mean, they can also be really creepy to think about, um, but also kind of a cool concept. Yeah, I really like that because it's like the only way to truly understand it, like, is to actually experience it because living, like, life itself and humanity specifically is about making sense of experience. So if you were the universe trying to understand its own consciousness, it would make sense that you wouldn't want to just experience it as one person who may be privileged or someone who's only known poverty and abuse. You'd want to understand every facet of that conscious and that existence. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. And I love that. Yeah, just a theory. I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying it's a really cool idea. Yeah, I like that idea. I, I think like we need to keep finding ways to understand and practice and deliberately incorporate empathy into our lives. And so like mm-hmm. thinking about the universe as 
inherently wanting to understand like all of itself but like modeling that after our own humanity because that's really all we have to model anything after it's like it's our desire to also understand like where others are coming from yeah and i mean i know that obviously humans have a very high level of consciousness and self-awareness that being said there are certain human behaviors i will never be able to understand i am not a serial killer i i don't understand how people can go around and take human lives over and over and over again. I don't understand people who like manipulate their way up the corporate ladder. I don't understand these parts of people and how they can be okay with that without feeling the sense of guilt and shame that I know I would feel. But I know that there are people like that. And as much as I can try to understand the mechanics of it from a distance, I can never truly know until I step into their shoes. So if the universe does have a mass consciousness and is trying to understand itself entirely, you would have to step into those shoes repeatedly. You'd have to. Like, everybody's shoes, because no two experiences are going to be the same. Yeah. What do they call that in uh, Ancient Aliens, the uh, Akashic Record? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not giving any credence to the teachings of Ancient Aliens, but I'm just saying that it's not a foreign concept. Yeah. Like, it's been put out there by other people in different ways. Sure, yeah, I, I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> There's different different names for the same concept. Uh, so the last part of the supernatural phase uh, that I wanted to talk about was just that some people report being taken beyond the light, and even re- some people report seeing cities made entirely of light, and I thought that was really cool and very golden fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really cool concept. Yeah. So the last phase of uh, pleasurable NDEs is return to body. I found this bit really fascinating. About half of people who have near-death experiences report that they were given a choice about whether or not to return. I've heard this very often. Really? Yeah. I never. I had never heard that. Uh, so to me, that means the other half don't report that sense of choice. Um, they just like came back. They're uh, like, dope. I'm out. So it makes me wonder about when people die. Do some of us choose death? Does it depend who it is and at what time? It sounds like we don't all always get a choice, but it sounds Mm -hmm. like maybe some of us sometimes do. Um, So I'd be kind of curious to see if there's data on um, exploring who tends to feel like they were given a choice and who tends to feel like there wasn't a choice. Yeah, I wonder if it's people that like had like almost a 50-50 chance because Mm. any doctor will tell you that even the most basic rudimentary surgery can go sideways and at any point in time little bacteria little things left in there i don't know the oxygen machine explodes (laughs) a lot of things Things can can go wrong yeah things can go wrong in a heartbeat but i've also uh heard that your will to live is also very important like uh, there's broken heart syndrome like um there was a really fascinating article in the new york times after Debbie Reynolds died the day after her daughter Carrie Fisher passed away. And a doctor describes how the degree of sorrow that those people experience actually creates a physical reaction. It looks like the heart's actually being suffocated. Mm. And in Debbie Reynolds' case, because of that suffocation, the lack of blood flow, the lack of oxygen going to her brain, it ended up triggering the stroke that ultimately killed her. So if you don't have a strong enough will to live, I can see that being metaphorically being like, well, you have a choice. You can either fight to live and go against these natural processes in your body, or you can just succumb to it. Yeah, I I think I think that you're probably right. Um, I did also have the question, like, do people regret coming back? Does anyone ever talk about like, I wish I hadn't? Uh, And 
I'll get into the conclusion that research seems to be leaning towards. Okay. The people who did choose to return report that they did so because of the love and connection that they have for one or more people who are still alive. That makes sense. My child, my husband. Yeah. uh, Regardless of where this experience is coming from, I find that to be just like a really beautiful statement about how connection-driven humans are and how at the end of the day, even when we're faced with a being made of light and pure acceptance, what matters the most to us are the other flawed, limited humans that we love. Yeah. That are still there. That's also like the flip side of the coin to my Debbie Reynolds story is because of that connection to her daughter and it was her sorrow that ended up ending her life. But what if Carrie Fisher had lived? How much longer would we have Debbie Reynolds here? Right. How much more worth living would it have felt because you had someone you loved there? Yeah. 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 So I thought that was um, just worth really letting sink in because shit's going to get dark real quick. <laughs> to pull a happy spin on things. Please do. It, it makes me think about uh, It's a Wonderful Life and at the end when George Bailey's realizing like how much his life has really affected to other people and just like those little words of encouragement in his case he um stopped the pharmacist from accidentally uh poisoning a child he built all the homes for the people that were stuck in slums even though it resulted in his own poverty he saved his brother's life and let his brother go on to college so he was able to become this ace pilot in world war ii and get the congressional medal of honor and saved all these people in this aircraft carrier as a trickle down effect which actually i think speaks even more to if our will to live is so based on the relationships around you it's a glaring warning to every time you cut someone down to the bone with your words or your actions but at the same time a beautiful message to how much just that one word just like those few little acts of kindness that may mean little to you but may mean the world to someone else how much that can save someone yeah because i have to admit when i think about being on the receiving end of my own actions i always think about like really having to deal with the consequences for me being an asshole. But like Mm -hmm. the flip side of that is you'd get to experience maybe like the person who are like, you're like, hey man, nice smile. And like they felt like their day was made or they just like needed someone to notice them or say something good. Yeah, like what if someone had a shit day and you were like, I'm sorry, I I don't know you, but I love your boots. And like, you'll never know that. And like, it would be cool if like you got to experience that from from their perspective and be like, oh God, now I feel like a human again for a second. And just like those little moments of connection. Yeah, so I think that that's a positive message to pull from it. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I will say uh, I'm a little mad at you because Lee and I have been discussing what <laughs> Christmas movies to watch, and I fucking hate Jimmy Stewart. I know I, that's an unpopular opinion, but I hate Jimmy Stewart, and I will die on that fucking hill. But Fair. I, I I should watch. I should rewatch. It's a Wonderful Life. He's been wanting to watch, and I was like, I don't, I don't. Uh. All right, so um, let's brace ourselves for the distressing near-death experiences. I do have a a little bit more information, just generally, that'll help us decompress after the distressing ones, and then that'll be done. People report, like I said, having pleasurable near-death experiences much more frequently than the distressing ones. I cannot underline that enough. These are just way more rare, so... Okay. Just throwing that out there. Other side of that coin, though. The fact that people report this less frequently does that mean that it happens less frequently? Or is that the nature of self-report and research? And yeah. when you go through something where you experience shame, you don't want to share that with people generally. Fair. So I'm just going to toss that out there as a potential underreporting 
caveat. However, uh, oh, within the category of distressing near-death experiences, people most frequently report experiencing the powerlessness type. So I'll explain that one and I'll go into the other ones. Okay. Uh, this powerlessness is the most common within the distressing. So I'll go like most to least common. In the powerlessness type, people go through the same phases as in the pleasurable near-death experience, but they experience a sense that it's happening to them and that the lack of control is met with resistance, fear, anger. It, it kind of gets wrapped up in like, I can't do anything about this. Yeah. Uh, so that's the most, the most common of the distressing, which sounds like it sucks, but doesn't sound as bad as I could imagine something like this. Yeah. In the nothingness type, people felt they did not exist. There is a psychological term for that, like when you're awake, which is uh, depersonalization. So feeling like I'm not real or I don't exist. Oh, I've had that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, huh. it can sometimes be a function of severe depression. In the nothingness type, also sometimes people experience being alone in an endless void. So it's not only like I'm not real, it's like I'm not real and nothing exists. So you're existing in a place where the only thing that exists is you? <laughs> Isn't that a paradox? I mean, because if you're trigger warning, big, big trigger warning, if you try to think about what nothingness truly is, like if there is absolutely nothing and this is the only known existence there is, it is fucking terrifying. Yeah. And it gives me anxiety. That's why I said trigger warning. I wrote uh, scary shit. <laughs> yeah. But imagining being in that state, but the only, but you still have a consciousness about it is fucking awful. Yeah. Yeah. Warning lifted. Completely alone. Next, I mean, this whole episode is a trigger warning. Next I, comes, I, I know, I just feel like in that particular moment, because that has like stoked like some real bad anxiety. I just before. didn't want people to think that it was about to get better. Um, next comes the torment type. Yay! Any guesses as to what happens in the torment type? Tori, it gets worse. People describe hideous landscapes, evil beings, scary creatures, annoying noises, and sometimes even other humans or spirits being tormented. Okay, when you said annoying noises, and you said including humans, I was like, I thought that wasn't. <laughs> no. I'm sorry. It's just Jim Carrey going, you want to hear the most noise out of the world? <laughs> <laughs> it's just Jim Carrey in the corner doing various faces <laughs> on a mountain of skulls. Jim Carrey is a common feature in negative, distressing near-death experiences. Uh, yeah, so uh, I wrote, fucking yikes. <laughs> and then the least, terrible. the least common, this is the last one, of the distressing near-death experience is worthlessness, where only a few people have reported being judged negatively by God or a higher power. That is the least common. I found this fascinating. Some people have reported that when they surrendered to their near-death experience, stopped fighting it, or called on a higher power for help, their experience changed from distressing to pleasurable. Interesting. I, I did read about, I didn't read about it. That's a lie. <laughs> it was one of those like uh, unexplained or bizarre true story like uh -huh. things. And they interviewed a guy who had a near-death experience when he was in a hospital. And he saw himself walk out of the hospital and then like he was attacked by people and dragged down to hell. And then they started torturing him. And then at some point in time, like he prayed to God or something like he called upon a higher power. 
and then it changed. So, I mean, that tracks was like the one like distressing story that I've heard. Uh, so that is, a, it's interesting that you can change them from distressing to pleasurable, but uh, I didn't find any research and they said this, it just doesn't happen where they change from pleasurable to distressing. You're either, like once you're in the pleasurable one, you're okay. in the pleasurable one. Don't look at this. You're going to have a nightmare. Just look over here. Just do something else. Yeah, it made me think of that for sure. It's just like, my what? dream catcher. Just like <laughs> following all these people around like, whoa, whoa, buddy. And then uh, this is probably like, I don't know, this is one of my favorite parts of this research. Almost everyone who's ever had a near-death experience says the experience changed them. And regardless of whether it was like a pleasurable one or a distressing one, most people go on to later say that it was ultimately beneficial for them and their life, frequently stating that the near-death experience was the most profound or meaningful experience of their entire life. 98% uh, of people who have near-death experiences believe there's life after death following the experience, regardless of how they felt before like even people who didn't think so almost always believe there is afterwards uh you can google like atheist plus uh near-death experience and there's a famous account of like a really well-known atheist who had one in 1981 who was like i don't believe in god still but i do believe there's an afterlife of some kind now yeah um i forget his name but you know you can find it <laughs> something that i thought was really encouraging out of this research is that 80 percent of people who have near-death experiences report having increased concern for other people following the experience. And uh, over half of people say that they experience an increase in psychic ability or healing powers following their near-death experience. Citation needed. Yeah, well, you can definitely go to this website for it. Um, yeah, I also was like, okay. Cool. <laughs> but concern for others, I'm all for it. Yeah. Uh, just a few more different areas to touch on uh, regarding data on near-death experiences. There have been reports of blind people having visual perception during these experiences. And are these people that were born blind, that yeah. have never had vision? People who are blind from birth. Okay, because I've heard that, like, you know, people who are born blind, like, they don't even dream vision. But if you were, if you had vision before you went blind. Yes, but no, these are people who have never had vision, supposedly experiencing some kind of visual perception. Again, this is all uh, cited on the uh, International Association for Near-Death Studies Incorporated's website. But that's still a really cool concept, because, like, what if I told you to imagine a brand new color? You right. can't, because that's, that, that's outside of your realm of understanding, because our eyes aren't designed like that. So I'm curious how they would, how they would even react to that. No, I'd like to read some accounts of these i thought i i deliberately didn't go down the rabbit hole of accounts because i knew i would stay there yeah. <laughs> children who have near-death experiences often report growing up and becoming adults and like who feel very different from other people they feel mm -hmm. like different from other children as children they feel different from other like they just feel very separate well which... also how many kids have near-death experiences i mean I think... you, you are different yeah yeah, yeah. like it is You've different. had an experience it's very, very different. I, I'm going to get into some of the research on suicide and near-death experiences. Uh, I know that research shows that one of the risk factors for a suicide attempt is a previous suicide attempt, meaning that you are more likely to attempt a second or third time than you are a first time. If someone has one, it's a higher predictor, generally. Not for everyone, it is a risk factor. Mm -hmm. However, people who have a near-death experience as the result of a suicide attempt don't attempt it again. Um, oh, they interesting. Just, like, and they were just like, oh, oh, like, okay. They're like, oh shit, absolutely not. They tend to see life as a gift 
Quote, when they face hard times, they believe their job is to deal with the problem constructively. They see all life experiences as opportunities to deepen their ability to love and to increase their knowledge. Oh, that's so sweet. I know. I'm like, oh, you've got to like tap into the pure goodness of the universe or whatever. Your personal yeah. system is. That's mine. And like actually like saw the goodness and saw that that was in you and in everyone. Yeah. That's actually beautiful. So um, don't try to kill yourselves to get there. Yeah. Don't do it, guys. I will bring you back from the dead and bitch slap you. This whole description of mental and emotional resilience brought on by near-death experiences uh, really makes me want to understand the brain chemistry that's involved. Mm -hmm. So um, that depression treatment can make use of this. How can we learn to tap into this ability to feel like life is a gift and use that to help other people? The International Association for Near-Death Studies is researching how to use this data in suicide prevention, as well as how to use the data to help people who are terminally ill or grieving be less fearful about death. Yeah. So they're like working on ways to like codify this and make it into like effective treatment, which I thought was really encouraging. So I'd like to end this whole exploration of near-death experiences with what I think is um, one of the most interesting aspects and uh, one of the most suspect. (laughs) I'm intrigued. The phenomenon of veridical perception, I'll spell that, V-E-R-I-D-I-C-A-L, in case I'm pronouncing it wrong. (laughs) What the balls is that? According to the International Association for Near-Death Studies Incorporated, veridical perception consists of, quote, accurate description of specific, unique events happening around the NDE-er's unconscious physical body that the person could not have seen or heard and that the near-death experiencer could not have figured out through reasoning or logic. So almost astrally projecting throughout whatever area they're in to different areas that they would not have had access to. Most often these descriptions include the presence, physical appearance, or activities of people nearby or family members, sometimes and even at a distance. How weird. Uh, So I want to talk about one instance of vertical perception really quick. All right. Pam Reynolds, which is the real name, the real person. The mother of Malcolm Reynolds? Uh, (laughs) She underwent a surgical procedure to operate on her brain, which required the blood to be drained from her body and her body temperature lowered to 60 degrees, I'm assuming, Fahrenheit. Okay, okay, back up. I'm assuming like there's something like pumping her blood, but her body is drained of blood. Yes, this is, and I this is a real like medical procedure, so they could operate on something in her brain, and so it put all of her organs at a standstill, like she's not there consciously. Yeah, uh, science is crazy. <laughs> I, I wish she's still not over that. <laughs> I wish you guys could see the look on my face right now because I I'm in a world of trying to understand <laughs> and put things together, and I mean I know that it worked, so I know it's okay, and I know that it does work because this woman obviously something happened she probably lived afterwards but i'm somewhere else right now yeah it's a it's a weird thing so uh, i'm starting to hit you with all that to process but yeah her blood's not in her her body's down to 60 degrees uh she was able to accurately describe the procedure the instruments used and what the nurses said stating that she saw the surgery from a vantage point over her own shoulder and her brain's not functioning at this time while it's it's happening like like drained of blood and shit like what could possibly how could it be communicated so like even if like they were like saying things there was no way that she could like register or we just don't understand well enough how the brain works that's which is entirely always, possible because, i think that's the most the most parsimonious explanation it, for most of this i'm thinking because i mean you pick up on visual cues that you don't realize that you're picking up on yeah. all the time and you may not recall it until later so i mean maybe like when she was like rolled into the surgery suite she saw the tool of in- the tray of instruments or you know like most of us we grew up in the era, era of 
ER. And so you've watched like surgeries on TV a whole bunch of times and heard a bunch of medical talk. So like if I do, I mean, that's very distant. Our listeners can't see it, but they can probably guess that I'm flipping over a sheet of paper. They don't need to see it. Right. But in their mind, they're probably seeing, okay, she probably has a regular size sheet of paper, probably standard issue that comes off of every printer in the world. It probably has notes on it. She's obviously sitting in front of a microphone. They don't need to be present to know these things. And if I go, they're going to know that I have a pen in my hand and that I'm <laughs> clicking it on and off. And they can probably picture what's a very standard pen that's in almost every office on the planet. Very true. I, th I think um, more than anything, this makes me want to know more about how our brains and consciousness work, because if there are things that we're picking up on, maybe like the blood's drained out of our brain, but maybe there are still synapses that can fire and connect with each other in limited ways. And maybe our audio cortex is like part of what we prioritize when our brain functioning is low. Yeah. But who knows? I mean, clearly there has to be a part of her that's still working or she would just be dead. Um, and all putting the body on ice does is just slow down your processes. Right. Like there's a story of that woman who was a frozen solid and they went ahead and thawed her out thinking, you know, we're thawing out a corpse. And then she woke up and she was fine. No brain damage, no nothing That's because crazy. her body was able to slow down to a state to survive. So just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it's not possible. I mean, one thing that we do know about life is that it is as fragile as it is, it's surprisingly resilient. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Life finds a way. <laughs> and that's the second time we quoted Jurassic Park today. First time on the podcast. <laughs> the other one was Dino DNA. <laughs> you know what? I really like using my Dino DNA voice. I love your voice. With your dino and it gets stuck in the sap. <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I will say attempts to prove a veridical perception during near-death experiences have been limited in design, in scope. Like the last study that I looked at had a sample size of 12 and I just like didn't really even bother it. Like, that, that's you know what else I wonder if it is? Our old friend. Confirmation, Confirmation bias! <laughs> yeah, very much so. Because like when it hits and when people are right and they recall accurately, ooh, spooky. When people come back and say like, oh, there's a red frisbee on the on the roof and like there isn't one, then everyone just forgets about that. And I was like, bitch, you'd be crazy. And it doesn't become a part of the data set. Yeah, I, uh, I'm with you. Yeah. So I think that all of these claims related to near-death experiences um, need some real research to lend them more credence. But the fact that it is such a common experience makes me think it is, in, for whatever reason, a real phenomenon. Yeah. Wherever it's coming from, this is something that happens to people. Yeah. Whether it's real because our brains are releasing chemicals that trigger memories and unusual perceptions, or whether there's an afterlife, or maybe we just all have really intense dreams and we die. I'm excited to see where the research goes with uh, near-death experiences. And that's all I have. Yeah. Any final thoughts? Um, yeah, I very much enjoyed this episode. Uh, I do want to thank you uh, before we started this episode. So Lacey and I had a meeting last week where we sat down and mapped out our future episodes, our recording schedule so we can stay on track and so we can make things a little bit more uniform in the future. But when she proposed this episode, she knew that I had just gone through a lot. So I do want to really thank you for having the sensitivity to ask me. This happens to be a subject that I'm fascinated by. So thank you so much for not only bringing 
bringing this subject forward, but approaching it with great sensitivity like you did. You're so welcome. thank you. Yeah, I know that um, not all death is equal. Not all death talk is equal. I know that when my dad was dying and I was in Florida, I just got really obsessed with the serial killer that was in Florida at that time. I remember that. I remember <laughs> like, Lacey, you're down there. <laughs> and, um, you know, the other people in my family who were with me uh, naturally didn't want to hear about that because it was death and dying. But to me, yeah. it was something so wholly different. Yeah, it, it was something else to focus on. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, you saw me over the last month. I was there in body, but not in spirit. Yeah. And now that I'm back, um, I do have to give great credit to my father. He put together a beautiful thing at his house. It was great to see my cousins. I was able to see my grandmother's best friend, the hairdresser that did my hair my whole life and most of her life. That's so and cool. It ended up being perfect. So coming back after that trip, I do feel like me again um and thank you for being so supportive over the last month because this last month is such shit so thank you for uh answering my middle of the night text messages and just offering beautiful words of support both you and kendall texted me individually the day of the memorial and the day that i left to say (laughs) to check in and just offer your support so i really am truly grateful for that you're welcome yeah i'm glad i'm like i don't know what i can do to help but i know i have words and as we know, sometimes words can help. Yeah, you, the slightest thing can make the biggest difference. I'm glad to be so, your friend. Thank you. I'm glad you're my friend. <laughs> I'm glad we made this happen. And now we're doing this. I know, I love it. Uh, so again, you can expect our episodes every other Friday. We'll post the cocktail recipe on the Monday before the episode so that you've got a chance to get out, get the ingredients, and look forward to the episode. And uh, if you want more information, stay tuned for our outro. All right. <laughs> Record that now. As always, thank you for listening. And if you like what you heard today, please leave us a positive review and a five-star rating and tell your friends. All of that helps people know who we are so that we can bring you more of what you love. If you'd like more information on a specific episode, visit our website, crackpotcocktailhour.com and click on the episode's link. If you'd like to know when new episodes are coming out and see the cocktail recipes in advance, subscribe to us in your podcast app and follow us on social media. We are Crackpot Cocktail Hour on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest, and we're at Crackpot Hour on Twitter. If you've got feedback for an episode or would like to suggest an episode topic, feel free to email us. We're crackpotcocktailhour at gmail.com. Until next time, Crackpots, crack it like it's hot!